Welcome to the latest episode of the Death Labs Threat Research Podcast hosted by NetRich. Today I am joined by Juan. Everybody calls him Jags. I could try to mispronounce his name, but I'm going to skip past that. Uh, uh, a co-traveler of the Security Vacation Club over at Sentinel One. How are you doing today? I'm good. I, I don't know how Sentinel One would feel about uh, the reference to the Security Vacation Club, but I'll, I'll keep us honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that that's fair. As long as as long as the expense report still gets approved, right? That that's the the important <laughs> thing. They're essential expenses. Yes, yes. You know, it, it's all about building thought leadership, which is what we're here today is build thought leadership and and chat GBT. Um, so I've uh, you know my own personal research in in machine learning and data science as it applies to cybersecurity, uh, though you know is led to some insights on how I've changed and adapted to do things. Uh, but you know, we were just talking about uh, your work doing malware reverse engineering, how that's being helped, and uh, how you've implemented it in uh, your adjunct teaching role. So I wanted to have you on to discuss it. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it, man. I, so it's interesting, right? This has now become like the topic du jour. Everybody's talking about ChatGPT, um, which is great, right? You know, happy for, for OpenAI and, and that industry to get its, mm -hmm. its day in the sun. Um, particularly in cybersecurity, I think we have used AI uh, we've abused it as a, as a marketing term to a point of meaninglessness. Uh, yeah. And I was definitely on the agnostic train for a while. Like, I mean, I, I didn't, I, I mostly thought of it as, um, which I hope it's, you know, your audience doesn't mind me cursing a little bit, but um, yeah, there's I, I, no FCC here. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I had no faith in, in AI, um, whatever the marketing might say i think there's some limited use cases where i've seen it you know work really well but uh when it came to actual like language stuff and and genuine um uh, hardcore uses at least from what we were seeing in the industry it didn't really look like that was going to come around um and then we get these llms these like large language models uh, now being popularized by OpenAI, with ChatGPT, with uh cohere with uh what is it, Bing chat now even, mm -hmm. you know, sort of the, the rebirth of Clippy is powered yeah. by artificial intelligence. Well, um, okay, and, but, but it's but it's new Bing AI, right? It was it was, it was the Microsoft prede predecessor like 10 years ago that the internet turned into a Nazi. <laughs> that, that was that was that was Microsoft's chatbot, wasn't it? I, I think so. I think uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Meta might have also tried this not too long ago, where they just opened the damn thing up to the internet. It turns out that they get real racist real quick. Uh, you know, it, it, that's the part of, of LLMs that like people don't understand, right? It, it's a language model. It, it really is just a wonderful reflection of just how we talk uh, in all of the greatness and awfulness that is entailed by that, right? Like a lot of what's on the internet is just terrible. Um, so, you know, in some ways the LLMs will reflect that. But uh, what I will say from the cybersecurity standpoint is I think in very characteristic fashion, what we've seen is a ton of ambulance chasing. Um, mm -hmm. A ton of, you know, making up uh, boogeymen, or I, I guess I should say boogie people now. Um, <laughs> you, boogie persons. Boogie, boogie persons. Uh, no, but, you know, all joking aside, like this sort of ridiculous fixation with how this amazing technological improvement is just going to empower attackers. Oh, my God, the, the attackers are going to get so much better and attacks are going to get so much worse. And it's all because of AI. And it's like, you know, frankly... The attackers are doing just fine, right? Like they they are, mm -hmm. they are not at a loss 
of capabilities. It's not like they, they were having a hard time finding tooling. Um, so the, the fixation to me is, uh, it's kind of sad, right? Because you see this amazing potential that's coming with the availability, the mass availability of high quality uh, LLMs and like sort of generative language models and whatnot. And instead of finding applications in cybersecurity that might make a meaningful difference in empowering defenders, we're just kind of fixating on, on how it could be yet another aspect of the awfulness uh, that we deal with. So I think for me, that was like a very, uh, it was kind of like an unconscious fixation of saying, okay, this is a meaningful technological advancement. Can it be meaningful to anything that we do in cybersecurity specifically? Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I think you know that, that that yeah, the same things, right? All the 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 fear mongering that that took place, and I kind of reflect this like we had this like last year, two years ago with deepfakes. Oh, and right. The only the only real attack aside of okay, it's novel. Here's the fake Tom Cruise stuff, but the only real attack that ever actually emanates from deepfakes is basically synthetic revenge porn. Right. There's your attack model. Right. You know, yeah. it's, just, it's 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 women, pre predominantly women being victimized by, you know, predominantly men trying to harass them on the Internet. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we do seem to find, you know, greater and greater ways of of kind of doing awful things uh, it, with every kind of new type of technology. And, you know, to, to add to the deep fake narrative, right, like you did have that one attempt by the Russians to, like, do the fake Zelensky uh sort of deep fake uh message giving up the war or whatever um all right you know sort of weak weak attempts uh, nothing really meaningful uh but i you know i had forgotten the the hysteria around the deep fakes somehow uh the funny thing is when you talk about anything generative um with you know with generative text and also things mm -hmm. like deep fakes the real issues that you could supercharge are precisely the kind of cybercrime um, and things that by the numbers that none of us really like to bother with, right? Like there's very few people that specialize on things like romance scams or Nigerian scams mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, the BEC, business email compromise. It, it is multi-billion dollars in losses a year. But it's not sexy. It's not easy. Um, you have this like massive unreported attacks. A lot of it is consumer level. It, you know, it's just not going to get the kind of numbers that make it worth uh, investment from from the corporate types. And, and right. you get you know you have one. No, there's no like, business model to protect romance yeah. scams unless you know the Tinder, Grinder, Bumble, Nexus decide to do it for user protection. I mean, there's yeah. a reason why spam is as voluminous as it is. And it's not all selling you Viagra. Like there's people who really do fall for romance scams, business email mm -hmm. compromise type stuff, even just like tricking them. Hey, you know, you spoof a CEO's email, whatever. Um, that stuff actually nets criminals a ton of money. None of us yeah. want to deal with it. You have, you know, you have wonderful individuals like uh, Ronnie, who like will take that up as their like their research cause, like that's the thing they're going to work on. Um, but for the most part, people don't think about it. And the reason I bring it up is when you think about what uh, LLMs actually bring to the table that is sort of fascinating and new uh, and could cause real problems. Apart from a lot of structural unemployment that nobody in the valley wants to talk about, 
Mm -hmm. uh, it's the notion that you can now generate uh, text on the fly interactively in a way uh, that could scale up types of cybercrime that were too labor intensive to be worth it before. So, you know, if I can have not one romance scam that actually requires me to go around personally copy pasting seemingly relevant messages, but I can have an, an AI chatbot essentially dedicated to this relationship. Um, right. I think those are the things where you could say, okay, this technology might actually make a dent, uh, push numbers and, and awful things. Uh, I think at that point it becomes like, I'm not saying that that's a realistic concern. I think at that point it becomes a trust and safety issue for these platforms, right? Like nobody's right. self-hosting uh, ChatGPT, right? Like whatever's going on, if you start making thousands or hundreds of thousands of requests a day trying to generate content for romance scams, you know, at that point, it's very much on these companies to regulate their services and their platforms. Um, you know, and I'm thinking, I mean, you know, with, with this is, uh, what is it, Replica? Replica? However you pronounce it, right? You know, it's basically a, self, a somewhat, you know, ML-powered little chatbot on your phone that you kind of train right. for a little while to communicate with you however you want to be communicated with, right? right? Where, I mean, the notion is, is now you're creating a synthetic relationship which is what you need in a romance scam is you need, you know, a synthetic relationship and it's more straightforward to do that with the person at the keyboard, but right. it's not like we, we're not having the building blocks for that technology to, you know, create it at scale because I don't know how many users are on that platform. I think I saw it written in an article a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. you know, where it's a, a, a thing where, like I said, now you can do the customization. Right. I mean, you could, I think there's ways that you can do it. I'm not trying to give criminals any ideas, but frankly, if you are a criminal that has the time and resources to train LLMs, you probably have a much more fruitful career waiting for you. Uh, so I think it's just a matter of sort of like threat scoping and, and being realistic about what matters and what matters to us as an industry, right? Like what are, are we actually willing to fix? Uh, I just, I don't see that being the realistic concern. And instead, what we're doing is depriving ourselves of, of true powers that I think we could all use, right? Like there's so few people really in this industry. Uh, there's a skills shortage. Uh, it's very hard to get people trained. There's no, I mean, I, I would hesitate to say that there's any university program that's pumping mm -hmm. out ready-made um, practitioners, right? Like you, you can get better or, or, or worse trained folk, right? Like you, uh, what is it like RPI and CMU, they actually do teach, you know, some of these uh, newcomers, like how to reverse and how to find bones and, you know, okay, cool, great. Like those are great skills. Um, but it's to say, when you look at technologies like this, I think there's such a greater potential for you to think about how we can improve our educational pipeline, think about how we can improve um, knowledge gaps that people have that keep them back from engaging esoteric topics in cybersecurity directly. Because when I go, hey, you wanna learn how to reverse engineer malware? They're like, absolutely. It's like, okay, great. Go learn uh, Python, then learn C, learn some programming concepts, le learn some Windows internals, learn assembly. Um, and then this handful of tools and then come back to me. And it's like, you just gave this person two, three years worth of prep work before they can even engage the aspect of the industry that they were considering. Um, and I, I think that's a large part of, of the difficulty here, right? Like you either have 
these almost scammy 101s where it's like, hey, you, you want to learn how to do this thing? Great. Here, pay us $5,000. We'll give you a, an overview course. You will not be able to do any of these things by the time you finish, but you'll have more of an idea of what you don't know. Right. Um, and, you know, so that I think that that's a bit of a shame. And that's always been a thing that's like really bothered me because I, I was in a similar position when I started out where I just I didn't have the formal um, education for computer science. And I really mm -hmm. just it, I wasn't trying to become an engineer. I, re I didn't care to build software, but I really wanted to be in the, you know, malware reverse engineering, APT hunting space. So it, I really do feel for folks who want to get in. They have the willingness to they have the time to study and they just don't have the right kind of program. So, um, no, that sucks. I, in one of my projects that was that the pandemic killed, actually, I was going to create an associate's level cybersecurity degree. Oh, wow. Cause you know, and you know, it's in a position to do it and the pandemic hit and well, enrollments dropped and everything went sideways and I haven't been right. able to pick it back up. But the notion of, you know, I didn't get a degree in cybersecurity until a couple of years ago when I was really to get into a PhD program. Right. And all sorts of bizarre experiences about that, right? You know, I'd never taken a class in Java until I got that degree. And I've never used Java since, except to help my kid with this AP computer science homework. Um, Java you know, is a self-perpetuating cycle of just people who learn Java in order to teach Java to people that need to learn Java in order to, you know, the, get past the, the course requirements. It's, it, was it generational abuse? Is, is that the phrase it's <laughs> in psychology? <laughs> I think that's the right uh, that's yeah. the right way to look at something like Java, right? It's just so, at this yeah, point, it's, it's just yeah, it's, it's you know I was locked, you know, chained into a basement until I was twenty five. So I'm going to do that to my kids, and you know, here's your textbook in Java to buy to pass the time. I'm um, sure your kid who's sitting on the other side of the room is just loving this conversation. Uh, well, uh, I think thankfully left to go to the bathroom, so you know, I, I don't think he heard heard that part because he had he'd have some questions. <laughs> You know, well, but, but you know, he, he before has you get my hatred for Java, at least <laughs> look, it, 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 he would have gotten there himself. I think it's hard not to hate the damn thing. But um, I think there. So we've been kind of beating around the bush about sort of this notion of positive use cases for for ChatGPT and the LLMs. Yeah. And I, I do want to kind of engage that uh, fully because it almost feels like a kind of this open promise that I'm putting out there and then not substantiating. So. Um, I think first and foremost, the, the thing that I've found ChatGPT incredibly useful for that I don't see that many people discussing is reverse engineering. So mm -hmm. I, I think it takes some prompt engineering, it takes some familiarity, but it turns out that, I mean, programming languages in many ways are languages. A lot of these, uh, these LLMs are being trained on a whole lot of code. Right. Like when you look at something like uh, GitHub's Copilot, like I think a lot of people forget that that's powered by um, a specific model from OpenAI that, that you have yeah. access to when you go into ChatGPT. So this thing has a huge base of relevant code. Um, and it's one thing like I think a lot of folks immediately rush to ask it to write code. And, you know, I've got some good examples of where it does work and where it doesn't to do that. But I think the more interesting thing has been getting it to interpret uh, and summarize code, uh, or better yet, translate it. So, uh, you know, you, for the course at Hopkins, we did this reverse engineering course uh, for non-technical people. And I think that's where you really get into 
the really difficult, uh, almost naive task that we set for ourselves, you know, uh, God bless Thomas Ridd, you know, he's willing to sort of take some chances and, and do some experiments. So we said, look, it's very impractical. It's, it's very implausible that we're going to get through this. But what if we did a course where you show these people every stage entailed by the malware analysis um, the practice, the workflow? And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they might not know everything. They definitely won't be practitioners by the end of it. But rather than taking a 101 course and, and being only marginally uh, less ignorant, why don't we just show them the whole thing and go, hey, if you like it, here's all the self-study, here's all the different things that you should learn, but hey, you understand the process now. Um, and the difficult thing was we didn't have a homogenous set of students. So you get people that are coming from mm -hmm. uh, security studies, strategic studies, uh, you know, international relations, uh, everything but. Uh, and you do want to include some of these folks, because if you think about it, I mean, that those are the people who end up going into policy circles in D.C. and think tanks. And, and you know, they, they influence folks who influence folks who end up making some decisions that we tend to be very opinionated about. Um, right. So it was worth it in a lot of ways. And uh, look, it all just lined up in this perfect way. ChatGPT had, I think been made public beta like uh maybe three weeks or a month before we finalized like we actually got to the course um and the idea was all right let's try experiment you know let's try this experiment of getting chat gpt to be the ta essentially so obviously we had other folks there helping and i was there the entire time but you know we're doing a 25-hour intensive across one week let's get ChatGPT to handle all of, you know, the, the quote unquote, uh, dumb questions, right? right. Where, where do I find this thing? How do I write this code? You know, where, where was the IDA sub view that, that shows me that this assembly, what does this line of assembly do? You know, what is this API for? Um, a lot of things that people could answer for themselves with enough time and reference material and RTFM their way through it. But rather than lose their attention for 45 minutes while they consulted the x86 guide, they could just ask ChatGPT a question and, and get a relatively accurate, relatively quick answer. Um, yeah. So that was the experiment. And frankly, uh, first of all, I, I think we had an amazingly engaged crop of students, which is complete luck of the draw, right? Like anybody right. who's had to teach, you, you know, you can't control that part. Uh, you you just hope and pray that you get people who actually want to learn and you're you're not all just sitting there wasting everyone's time. Uh, so we got a very, very engaged crop of students, which is fantastic. Uh, but then it, it, it did turn out that unlike other attempts to teach uh, sort of a broader set of RE, uh, in this case, you had people really following through. And I had, you know, students writing me at eight o'clock at night after seven hours of coursework who were still going, hey, I figured out how to decrypt this string. Like, what do I do with this? It's like, okay, that, I think in that sense, it, that's when it clicked that we had, you know, figured out a way to make something very implausible work. And I, I do think that the availability of that LLM was sort of invaluable to making that happen. No, I mean, it definitely sounds like that. That's a, you know, for some of these top classes, right? You know, I mean, actually, I've you know teaching classes, you know, to, you know, overseas, right? There's other cultural gaps is like, 
there's a lot of, you know, you know, not dumb questions, but questions that people feel dumb for asking. Right. Right. And there are, you know, in other places, there's just cultural barriers to just doing it. There, there are people like, you know, who would rather just sit in silence right. to otherwise, uh, you know, in, in China, it's losing face. Right. But in other parts of the world, similar kind of phenomenon. It's interesting right. that you mentioned that, like, just since you brought up sort of cultural parts in, in Asia, I have heard this from multiple instructors who will go to teach things in Asian courses, right? And, and, and they'll, they'll go to Asian audiences, so Singapore, South Korea, uh, Japan, uh, and they're teaching something. And they tell me, man, like for four days, everyone in the class was just nodding at everything I said. And then on yeah. the fifth day, when you, when, you know, ask them a question or you tried to get them to... Uh, you know, to do some of it themselves, you could tell that they 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 were confused and they had no idea sort of what they were covering. And it, it you know, I think it makes you feel bad as an instructor, especially in a in an audience like that, because you're like, well, could I have simplified the language? Was there a barrier here that I could have helped if I'd known right that the message wasn't getting across? But yeah, I, I hadn't considered sort of the the cultural side of things because I haven't had to try to internationalize the experience. Uh, but yeah, I wonder to what extent we can even, you know, we could try to leverage some of the same things. It doesn't, it doesn't fix everything, right? Having a, a machine that can write sentences does not in any way fix all of our problems. But I'll say it at least starts to fill certain knowledge gaps in such quick succession that you can almost, you, they feel more like potholes in the road, right? Like you can drive over them. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one way to accelerate things in a in a targeted, specific way, right? Yeah, I mean, there's more use cases there that I think I, I really hope folks will just start to explore, right? Like I, uh, again, you get a lot of preemptive judgment and I think half-baked perceptions. Oh, I asked it to write this code and it wrote insecure code. It, it recommended a piece of crypto I didn't like. It hallucinated an API that doesn't exist. All right. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that you didn't have an amazing experience right away, but like a part of this is also prompt engineering, right? Like, did you ask the question the right way? Was there an answer to be derived? Were you asking a, a question about math that this language model is not in a position to answer? Did you ask something about, uh, you know, information that's only available uh, at a at, at a timeline where it was not available to its training set. So for example, uh, ChatGPT is limited to data up to 2021 and it's not connected to the internet. Uh, a notable loss there is when you try to get this thing to write you code for Ida Python, uh, it's all wrong because the Ida Python API was arbitrarily uh, changed as it always is in 2021. Right. Um, so yeah, it just, it doesn't know. It'll give you a decent answer with outdated APIs and you can just sort of plug your way to a solution, but it is to say the damn thing is not a mission, right? Right. Well, yeah, you know, and part of that is to solve the problem. And I, I looked, it was Microsoft's chatbot called Tay in 2016 that became, uh, you know, a, a, sex, a sexist Nazi chatbot, you know, <laughs> and was euthanized within 24 hours. Um, you know, they got like, to it quick. Yeah, we need to put this horse down, the synthetic horse down, and send it to the synthetic glue factory or something. Um, well, now you see, uh, what is it, Sydney, right? The uh, the Bing chat, which I actually haven't gotten access to the, the beta. I am, I'm, I'm relatively curious. But like, it, it's crazy to know that 
Microsoft got their hands on the same engine, uh, the same, in theory, the same LLM as, as uh, ChatGPT, I think, um, and managed to give it like a, a shitty personality. Like, how <laughs> did you do that? How did you, how did you turn it into this like spoiled, emotional, like angry gaslighting machine, right? Like there's something there that reflects sort of the owner more than, than the technology itself. Right. I find well, that fascinating. I mean, that goes to one of our fundamental cybersecurity problems, right? Is, you know, garbage in, garbage out, right? How do you, how do you, the math doesn't save you from malicious inputs and, right. or, or otherwise problematic inputs, you know, uh, no amount of linear algebra or fast Fourier transforms or, uh, you know, Gaussian this will ultimately stop that problem. Um, yeah. So there has to be guardrails, right? And I guess yeah. one of not having it on the internet and controlling uh, and not uploading data past 21 that isn't otherwise otherwise reviewed is one way to do it. Right. Uh, I mean, it comes you, with consequences, but... It's funny that you mentioned guardrails. It's so... I think it's going to take some serious genius um, to figure out how to implement effective guardrails uh, in LLMs. Like I, you know, it, there's just so many ways you can trick this thing into answering a question that it's not supposed to answer. And trying right. to, like, it's really funny to see like the ultimate automation companies, right? The, the AI companies trying to essentially like create hand, handcraft rules for content. Right, because the AI doesn't know any better, um, and rather than it being an automated problem, I think in many ways they're they're just starting up the this like hill of actualization where they have to figure out, okay, well, what if we tell it that it can't tell you how to make a bomb? What if we tell it that it can't write you ransomware? And it's like, well, it turns out that if I you know tell it to imagine itself as making a bomb, that it doesn't know any different. It turns out that if I talk to it about explosives and then ask it for examples, that it might go into a conversation that it shouldn't be having. Right. Uh, there's so many ways because, again, like as, as much as it passes the Turing test, it makes you feel um, that you're talking to someone that knows what you're saying and, and is reasoning. It, that's, that's just not what's happening. It's just a whole lot of math over a whole lot of language. So you're getting things that sound like what we expect from human speech and in many ways are intelligible and in many ways are relevant and useful, but no, this person isn't thinking, wait a minute, you're trying to trick me, right? Like that, that's just not uh, actually baked into the fabric of how this thing works. So we have some really interesting like content moderation challenges ahead of us uh, right. precisely because, you know, you you're you're going at a content at a content problem that is being generated at computer speed trying to sort it out uh in content moderation terms that are entirely human right and there's yeah you know, there's no understanding nuance or humor or any any number of things that go into human communication right, right? and we don't we don't get it right on, on social media today <laughs> you know, yeah it's a, you know the the supreme court case of was it earlier this week or last week? You know, uh, against Google about terrorism content, right? You know, yeah. 
same thing, you know, the, the fights mean, are still playing out. And at that point, that was just human generated content, not machine generated content. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think mean, there, there you're seeing reckonings. algorithms anyway. Yeah. You're going to see those reckonings. I mean, I think it, in many ways, it's also just uh, people starting to uh, scratch the surface of, uh, you know, should we have Section 230 and, and what would guardrails around that look like? And, you know, what do you do? when U.S. companies and partners decide to be uh, their worst, right? Like, you know you have a problem, but you're making money, so you decide to ignore it, and then everyone suffers in a genuinely disproportionate way. Um, And does that mean we're going about it the right way? No, but I think when you wait for a reckoning, uh, you don't usually get the most nuance at the end of things. So after everything that happened, uh, in 2016 and, and all the disinformation that's gotten through and all these difficulties with platforms to then find these companies to be sort of hand wavy, unresponsive stewards of the internet um, is causing folks to maybe take a closer look at, at just how much protection they should and shouldn't have. And I mean, I, it's an incredibly unpopular opinion to say that, you know, we should change Section 230 or anything like that. And I'm definitely not the right person to advocate for what the right policies are. But I think it's become obvious that to some extent, you can't just leave content moderation to the uh, YouTubes, Facebooks, Pornhubs, whatever of the world uh, without any kind of regulation or enforcement. Um, right. And, uh, you know, what that means, what that turns into, I have no clue. But the fact that we have to beg companies to to collaborate to get involved to to control what's happening on their backyards uh is it's sure to get some people going well why the hell can't we tell them precisely that they should go take this or that down when it's expressly illegal expressly damaging expressly netting them money right so you you have some some difficult questions ahead of you if you're a, a sort of content um provider and content uh, hoster. And I'm not saying that it's the right outcomes that are going to come of it. I'm saying that it, it's just obvious that something's not working right. Right. Well, it kind of begs the question, is it working at all in the first place for a lot of people? Um, you know, and I think you right? The, the tech companies making money, most of the cybersecurity problem exists because the people making software solutions are not the ones who are paying the price when crime happens. I was just going to say, I mean, we're, we're staunchly like largely anti-regulation and, and that's understandable considering that like when you do try to pass internet regulation, it tends to just screw something else up in oh. a whole different direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all, on, all the solutions suck. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of them suck more than others, right? Like when you don't right, ask right. anyone that knows what the hell is going on, you don't even get them in the room. Uh, it turns out that you, you know, not to be ageist, but our, our septuagenarian uh, former, I don't know, urologist turned senators aren't necessarily the best people to decide uh, sort of the content of uh, internet regulation and how, how, the, how things actually work. Does that mean that there are no solutions? Well, no, I mean, you just have to talk, you know, hopefully you have to get the right folks in the right room and then, you know, come at it with the right intention. But when you look at things like 
uh, targeted ads sort of siloing and changing the entire internet experience on the basis of like uh, essentially social credit, right? Like we bulk so much at what China is doing with the internet. But when you look at the way that we currently rank and filter content, what we provide to whom, who gets what deals, who gets access to what, um, and we've essentially started to change the face of the internet experience, right? Like there, there is a fundamental difference there when it comes to those ads and when it comes to to that content that I think people dismiss very easily as like, well, that's just advertising. It's like when people used to advertise to us, if you put an advertisement on TV, you put the same advertisement on that channel for everybody, right? And everyone could see if you were like dog whistling something racist or if you were saying something massively alarming or more importantly, if you were trying to feed one version of reality to one household and not to the other, because, you know, there would be discrepancies. Um, there is something that's cha that's changing fundamentals of human experience when the person in the apartment next to mine is seeing a completely different version of the world, even when we both type the same Google search into the same internet. Yeah. No, I you make an interesting point, especially in an env environment where people's viewpoints of reality are rapidly diverging from each other. Mm -hmm. You know, not just necessarily, you know, on an opinion level, right? It's yeah, you know, actually, this is my class lecture last night, right? Of just talking about just the internet architecture and that those global consensus about how an IP address should be looked is like. Uh, our, our world community cannot agree on the number of countries there are on planet Earth, right? You know, right now, right? And right. you've got those levels of dispute are only multiplying where there's just no consensus of the facts. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, an advertising or information experience where people are just being fed different sets of information that lead to different decisions or outcomes, all based on, you know, probably LLMs you know, has downstream consequences that aren't being right. paid for by the per people who are putting this stuff out. Right. I mean, I think maybe the only time that you see uh, some direct corollaries, like I'm trying to remember the, uh, there was a company whose stock plummeted uh, right around the time that, you know, Elon got the genius idea to like, let anyone have a verified blue check mark. And it turned out that, you know, people who were running fast frequency trading algorithms didn't catch on to the fact that you could now have a blue blue check marked account that was just impersonating a different brand at the most shallow level. And right. someone puts out a tweet, hey, you know, the, the price of insulin is fixed from this point forward. And someone's stock freaking plummeted uh, like an inordinate amount in seconds and minutes. Um, <laughs> You, I think those that's one of the few instances where you kind of see the machinery that's underlying things sort of laid bare by its own inadequacy. Uh, but there are so many aspects of uh, shared reality, economics, and so on that have just shifted quietly. Um, and it, it's why I'm like, I, I, I always plug this book, but like I was, I loved uh, Shoshana Zuboff's Age of Surveillance uh, Capitalism. It, 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 it's right over the top of my laptop. I've looked up and seen it a couple oh of times. God. It's 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 
you know, it, it, I use it as a backdrop for, for webcam, you know, or, or video based stuff. Right. You know, along with a couple of other select books, you know, Just you know, zero day. Looking very well you know, read. Yeah. Yeah. The unseriousness of human affairs. That one's up there. If, oh, you, nice. if you like Jesuit authors, uh, I just like the title personally. Uh, because you know it's all bullshit, and it's always been bullshit, Correct. and it always will be bullshit. Um, so, <laughs> um, so there, there's my cynical view of the day. So, yeah, I'm gonna add that to the to the book list. I think, this, despite the Jesuitness, apparently. Yeah, no, I'll uh, I'll see if I can bring it the next time we uh, end up somewhere else on the Security Vacation Club talk circuit. You know, and uh, we can drink it over a bottle of uh, uh, Fireball. That's your God choice, right? Yeah. Oh, Lord. I, I'd like to think that I have different drinks of choice, but I, uh, I'm afraid I think that that's where we've landed. Yeah, you, you've been typecasted now, brother. Sorry to say. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to it, man. We'll, we'll find a spot. All right. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you again, Jags, for, for joining. Uh, you've Thanks been listening to me. the uh, NetRich Death Labs uh, Threat Research Podcast. We have episodes up every other Wednesday on available on all of your usual podcasting apps. Uh, so hope that you will uh, tune in for a future episode. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.